KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The hour. Joe Biden has historic achievements as president, but polls show him to be the candidate least able to defeat Donald Trump in the 2024 election. Democrats need someone else to run and an open primary to choose that person. Harold Meyerson will explain. Also, the story of an immigrant sweatshop worker who became one of the most charismatic radical leaders of the early 20th century. Rose Pastor Stokes has been forgotten, but Adam Hochschild tells her amazing story. His book about her is titled Rebel Cinderella. But first, As the Israeli military continues its war in Gaza, we need to ask how we got here and what we need to do to achieve significant long-term change. For a look at the big picture, we turn to David Myers. He teaches Jewish history at UCLA, where he serves as director of the Luskin Center for History and Policy and the Initiative to Study Hate. He's written for the LA Times op-ed page, The Forward and The Atlantic. We reached him today at home in LA. David Myers, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. So nice to be with you. We're speaking on Tuesday, December 12th. It's 67 days after the October 7th attacks by Hamas, which killed 1,200 Israelis. As of today, the Israelis have killed more than 18,000 Palestinians, the great majority of whom are women and children. And there are almost 2 million homeless people in Gaza. What is your assessment of where we're at right now? Well, John, I think it'd be hard to say anything other than in a dreadful, terrible situation. Um, and I would enumerate the reasons why as follows. First, this seems to me to be a war with no achievable goal if the declared goal is the elimination of Hamas. That seems to be uh, something that you know, could be achieved if... Israel were willing to commit three years and countenance hundreds of thousands of dead. I don't think that's going to happen. And therefore, the declared aim is is uh, unrealizable. Uh, in addition to which, there's no plan for the day after on the part of the Israelis, um, having essentially displaced the entire population of, of Gaza. There, there, there's no plan for what will happen when the war ends. All of that is really secondary to the principle concern, which is the enormous destruction, uh, the loss of life on a monumental scale, injuries um, on a monumental scale, and the raising of much of Gaza, such that after the war ends, and God willing, it should end very soon, uh, there will be no place for uh, those who've been displaced to the south of Gaza to return. They will return to simply scorched earth. And all of that leads to what I think is the most worrisome outcome of the conflict to this point, which is that um, if there were limited political horizons prior to uh, October 7th, there are fewer today. What uh, this latest cycle of violence shows, and I think it is appropriate to call it a cycle of violence, this late, latest cycle of violence seems to have deepened, entrenched enmity and a sense of the impossibility of coexistence between Israelis and Palestinians, Jews and Arabs. I think at some point there will be another day and there may be another possibility um, for a world in which there is not ceaseless enmity and cycles of violence, but it does seem far off. And briefly, how did we get here? Some point to the occupation of 1967, not only because of the military rule of, but of the rise of the ultra, ultra orthodox uh, settler movement that was begun shortly after that. Some point in 1948 and the Nakba and the expulsion of 700,000 Palestinians and the assumption that they would just go away and that would be the end of it. How do you answer the question, how did we get here? Yeah, I mean, yes and yes. Um, I think the two dates you mentioned are highly relevant. There are contextual circles in which we need to place this conflict. I would go even further back to the late 19th century, to the origins of the Zionist movement and the Zionist project of national liberation for Jews, which brought uh, Jewish settlers from Europe to uh, to Palestine. 
And shortly after their arrival, certainly by the early 20th century, uh, there were tensions over control and ownership of the land. Um, those tensions developed in the 20s and 30s into violent clashes between Jews and Arabs, leading up to 1948, which was uh, a year that marked the divergence in the lived experiences and narratives of the two peoples. They ran in parallel, but in reverse directions. Uh, so in the case of the Zionist or the, the, the Jewish settlers in Palestine, the movement was from exile to homeland, whereas for the Palestinians, the movement was from homeland to exile. Um, and there, I think you already can see sort of the, the enormous tension between these uh, two peoples, these two lived experiences. And I do have to add one important point about 1948. I think it wasn't just a clash between national aspirations, uh, a clash between uh, two groups of people that had been locked in struggle over the land for half a century. It is also a clash between two enormous national or collective traumas. For the Jews, the trauma of the Holocaust, which created such a sense of existential urgency and such a belief in the imperative uh, to win this war um, and to brand the opponent as uh, as the incarnation of Nazism. And in the case of the Palestinians, the outcome of the war was the catastrophe, the Nakba. And those two tensions of the Holocaust and the Nakba have continually intersected over the course uh, of the past 75 years. And I think we saw um, and have seen uh, how dramatic that clash was uh, on October 7th, when the scenes of, of massacre uh, triggered in many Israeli Jews a recollection of the worst days in Jewish history, including in the Holocaust. I think we have to add to this just a, a couple of other important contextual circles. You mentioned 1967, the Six-Day War, which began Israel's occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, uh, the displacement of more Palestinians in that conflict, and then Israel's control uh, over the West Bank. And uh, since 2005, uh, Gaza, and after 2005, after the withdrawal of Israeli settlers, um, Israel has maintained a tight security cordon around uh, Gaza. So 67 is certainly important to the story. But I think we also have to include maybe the narrowest um, contextual circle, and that is the long Netanyahu decade, the long rule of Benjamin Netanyahu that began in 2009. This was the second time he served as prime minister, um, but he's essentially served as prime minister from 2009 to the present, with the exception of one year. And the last election, the last of five elections that took place within two or three years, gave Netanyahu a very narrow coalition, um, or very narrow uh, path to political to retaining political power. And that was on November 1st, 2022. Uh, he was required or felt the need to join forces with far-right religious Zionist forces and forged a coalition that immediately set out upon a path of diminishing even further institutions of democracy in Israel. That produced a tremendous pushback on the part of the Israeli population that led to public protests that lasted for 40 weeks in the course of which the country was divided even further. The army and security services were uh, diminished by the virtue of the fact that reservists said they would not serve under a regime that was threatening democracy. And Netanyahu all the while maintained his objective to exert ever greater control over Palestinian territories in the West Bank and gave free hand to, to violent settlers to um, try to displace even further Palestinians. So the developments uh, of the past uh, year or so from January 2023 um, are very important to helping us understand why Israel was so unprepared uh, for uh, the heinous attack of October 7th and also helps us understand where we are now. And what are the, the short-term prospects for a ceasefire? We had a ceasefire. We had an ex exchange of uh, uh, prisoners and hostages. They say now that Netanyahu wants to keep the war going at least into January and maybe longer. They say Biden may at some point stop being uh, supportive of this war. What's your assessment? My assessment is that the moral and political costs will become ever higher, impelling the United States and Biden to tell Netanyahu that it's over, that um, enough enough destruction has been done. 
Um, but I've been saying that for weeks, so I, I don't know how much <laughs> confidence I have in my judgment. What seems clear is that Netanyahu does have uh, a good deal of interest in keeping the war going because the minute it ends, uh, his day of reckoning will come for the failure to heed uh, the various reports that um, were were um, delivered, calling attention to this, the possibility of a Hamas attack. But I, I, it's hard for me to believe that this could go on for longer than a month. Uh, so I'm going to say that um, my strong hope is that that Biden will will heed the call of so many around the world um, and make that call to to Netanyahu um, sometime this month. I mean, every day that goes by is just a uh, another tragedy leading to the loss of the lives of innocent people and especially children. And I think we need to be calling um, and doing all within our power to call for uh, an immediate ceasefire. I think the political costs and the moral demands uh, will will begin to exert themselves at some point. Um, it'd be hard for me to believe that this goes much into, into January. And at that point, the the work, the real, the really, really hard work uh, begins uh, because as I said, Israel has um, no real plan uh, for what to do, and the options are bad. The day after the October 7th attacks, you wrote a, a op-ed in the LA Times. You said, Israel needs to understand that the Palestinians are not going to surrender their claims to self-determination. They are not going to give up the fight against what you called the dehumanizing occupation, which has now lasted for 56 years. Uh, so let, let me put it this way. What conditions are needed for serious long-term change in this stalemate? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I said in that op-ed, John, was that the current paradigm is clearly broken. Um, and that paradigm um, involves uh, these periodic and increasingly violent cycles of violence. It also includes corrupt and ineffective political leadership. So I think what we need to do is break out of the current paradigm. It's hard for me to imagine we can do that with the current crop of political leaders. I'm thinking of the Hamas leadership, uh, the leadership of Mahmoud Abbas, Abbas of the Palestinian Authority, and the Netanyahu regime. Um, so I think we have to not only look forward to, but, uh, but do all we can within our power to urge those in a position to um, make a difference uh, to bring us a different crop of political leaders. Uh, it seems very hard to imagine another day that looks any different from the current day with this group. I also think that the two sides are not capable at this moment of resolving anything between themselves. Um, and this uh, leads me to conclude that if we want to uh, build a new paradigm, it will require substantial third-party intervention. Um, and that would require alongside that intervention, a kind of recalibration of um, American attitudes towards the conflict. Um, the United States has sided almost uh, uniformly and unequivocally with Israel. And Biden's visit to Tel Aviv um, to assert his Zionist bona fides left a very deep impression in Israel. Um, it would have been all the better if he then made his way to Gaza City and affirmed his deep commitment to to redressing um, the injustice and the deferred aspirations of Palestinians for so many years. That, that would have been, I think, the brilliant political move that could have transformed this this, this terrible situation, could have provided us with a, 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 new, a new model. That's what's going to have to happen. The United States is going to have to say, together with, I think, Arab allies in the Middle East, that we need a new paradigm. It's going to require our shared intervention, as say the United States and Arab states, um, and it's going to require massive in investment. Yeah, let's talk about that massive investment. You've called for a new Marshall Plan. We mentioned that there are nearly 2 million homeless people, nearly the entire population of Gaza has no place to live uh, right now. How would that work? What would it look like? Well, the logic of this is that we can't tinker around the edges anymore. We can't sort of slide the Palestinian question onto sort of the medium burner, not the front burner, and then push it back when, it's, uh, when it suits us politically. This issue must be addressed frontally, or I regret to say we're going to see more instances akin to October 7th. Again, this is not in any way, shape, or form a justification 
of that kind of heinous violence, um, which I condemn unequivocally. But unless we change the factors at work in the conflict, um, violence is going to continue. Um, and it's not to, to change things requires not a little bit of money, but a lot of money um, to really lift up in a kind of a sustained way the economic condition of Palestinians in the West Bank and particularly in Gaza, who live in dense, crowded conditions without much prospect of uh, a better life for their children. It requires a tremendous amount of wisdom, courage, um, and audacity to do what I suggest. But it seems to me a wise investment, um, given what the alternatives are. So what I'm talking about is really massive investment in Palestine, massive economic investment in Palestine, led by the United States and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, together with the articulation of clear political horizons with achievable goals. And that is maybe the harder part than encouraging the various third parties to, to provide that massive investment, investment, because what are we left with? Um, the existing paradigm seem to be two states or one state, both of which have been widely discredited. But I think this is a period of time in which we have to push towards greater political imagination in imagining what exists between two and one. And uh, that uh, kind of thinking will and must be part of uh, this huge investment of resources in raising up the economic status of Palestinians. And what groups in Israel now are leading in that kind of thinking? The United States needs allies in Israel. Uh, I know historically, Peace Now has been the big group advocating for uh, a Palestinian state. Tell us about the, the left-wing yeah. landscape right now. In the current environment, there are a couple of categories of groups that um, are doing essential work. Um, the first category is groups that bring together Arabs and Jews. And I'm thinking of uh, the great organizing movement standing together, a group of uh, Israeli Palestinians, uh, Palestinian Israelis and Israeli Jews, which is committed to organizing, grassroots organizing, um, on behalf of uh, the ideals of justice and equality for all. Um, and they have proven to be enormously effective uh, in doing so, in fighting against violence against women, in calling for a cessation of hostilities between Jews and Arabs in uh, mixed Israeli cities in May 2021. And, you know, even in the current environment where there's such fraughtness and tension, uh, standing together has been really at the forefront of holding together the diverse communities of Israel. So they're really doing uh, the Lord's work, as are groups like the Parent Circle and Combatants for Peace, Parent Circle, which bring together brings together Palestinian and Jewish victims of violence or their uh, their relatives. Say a little bit about what what is Combatants for Peace. Combatants for Peace brings together uh, former fighters uh, from the two sides uh, who recognize the futility of continuing this current paradigm of cyclical violence. And uh, the stories told by these former combatants is extraordinarily compelling. That, together with the parent circle, constitute the world uh, that was recreated so brilliantly by the Irish-American author Cal McCann in his book, A Paragon, which I recommend to all of your listeners. The second category that's quite relevant uh, to sort of the, the inter intermediate and longer-term prospects are groups like Mitvim, which is a, a think tank that imagines a different foreign policy for Israel, one that um, doesn't ignore uh, or disregard the Palestinian problem, but places it at the center of its vision. And another really important group that I think has become even more significant um, in recent uh, months called A Land for All. It's a group that engages in precisely that kind of political imagination that I mentioned by calling for a confederation. Um, that is to say, uh, it's an organization that believes in the principle of two states with several modifications on the classic two-state ideal, like an open border, which allows for Israeli citizens, principally over, who are over, overwhelming Jewish, to dwell in a state of Palestine, and Palestinian citizens of a state of Palestine to live in a state of Israel. You know, there are lots of issues and details to still be figured out, but that's the kind of imagination 
and new thinking that I think we need insofar as it collapses the seeming dichotomy between an ideal of absolute separation, which many want and yet is impossible and not particularly supportive of economic growth, for example, and the principle of integration in the form of a single state of all its citizens, which after October 7th seems to be a non-starter for most Israelis. So the beauty of a land for all is it um, sort of collapses the distinction between separation and integration in a format that uh, is known to states, but modifies it significantly. That's the kind of uh, new thinking that I think we need to support. Whether we support that particular ideal or some modification thereof, we need to avoid what is the death knell to this uh, uh, conflict, which is stasis, a sense of stasis and just no political horizon. Um, so these are some of the groups that I think are doing work that we should be paying attention to. And I know you've been a leader of the New Israel Fund. Where do they fit into this constellation? Yeah, the New Israel Fund has been the supporter, the financial supporter of almost all of the NGOs on the progressive side of the Israeli civil society landscape and is a supporter of many of the organizations that we've talked about. NIF has been there, is there, and will continue to be there. David Myers, his essay, The Hamas Attack Tore Off Israel's Veneer of Inv Invincibility, Is There a Sustainable Path Forward?, appeared in the LA Times the day after the October 7th attack by Hamas. David, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Democrats are sleepwalking towards disaster in the 2024 election. That's what Harold Meyerson says. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. A string of recent polls has shown Trump leading Joe Biden, but there's a new poll that should have all of us especially frightened. It's a survey of, that includes Democratic base voters conducted by Democracy Corps. That's a Democratic advisory group founded by Stan Greenberg and James Carville. Surveyed voters in presidential and Senate battleground states as well as competitive House districts. Tell us what it found. Well, what it found was pretty alarming. It was that uh, Biden is trailing Donald Trump in the specific demographics that make up most of the Democratic base. That is to say, young people, racial minorities, not Asians, but other racial minorities, and uh, single mothers, and also college women, and the LGBTQ commun community. So, you know, if he's trailing there, that is very bad news. This was on approval ratings on different issues, and the issues were much broader than the cost of living. Uh, let me just list some of the other questions and the answers they found. Which president will not be an autocrat? Biden wins, but only by two points among Democratic base voters. Which candidate would do better at protecting democracy? Biden beats Trump by one point. Which president will make democracy more secure? A tie between Biden and Trump. Who will do better at protecting the Constitution? That one, Trump beats Biden by eight points. This is among young people, single women, people of color, gay people. How could that be? Well, that could be for a number of reasons. And what uh, the Democracy Corps poll made very clear was that when it asked those people, what is the issue most concerning you? The number one issue by a huge margin among all of those groups was cost of living inflation. About 60% identified as the single issue most concerned about. 
Then, of course, each group varied as to what was the second ranking issue they were most concerned about, be it crime or climate change or uh, what have you. But there was a variable 30 percentage point gap between uh, the cost of living issue and the uh, second ranking issue. That is a lot of people uh, trying to deal with rent or housing generally and the cost of food. There's a, another poll before this one, a New York Times poll that asked voters about a race without Biden. Well, Biden in that poll was four points behind Trump. An unnamed Democratic candidate had an eight point lead, beating Trump 48 to 40 percent. What do you make of that? Well, I'm what I made of that went into my writing that I think other candidates would be stronger than Biden running against Trump, even though I think Biden has been, given the cards he was dealt, uh, a very good president. But one of the things I wrote that got the most positive response was that Biden doesn't seem capable of making the case for, I think, the policies on which a Democrat could win, making them forcefully or even audibly. I got, I got a lot of response to the word audibly. When people think of Joe Biden as old, I think his voice actually suggests old more than his appearance or anything else. And so the age issue uh, compounds, I think, an inability to make a really forceful case, compounds, uh, you know, the case for getting another uh, Democrat in the race. Now, let's acknowledge that a generic political figure invariably polls better than an actual existing particular uh, political figure who can be attacked rightly or wrongly for all manners of things as a generic, uh, you know, abstraction cannot be. There was one piece of good news in this Democracy Corps poll. It found that Democratic candidates in House battleground districts are running two points ahead of their Republican opponents among voters who say they are likely to cast ballots on election day. So this, once again, does not seem to be a problem of Democrats. It seems to be very specific Joe Biden. Absolutely. You know, most of those folks don't have to deal with the age issue. They don't have to deal with being seen as responsible for an administration, which most Americans, unfortunately, but this is the case, identify with a period of inflation and high costs. Those particular uh, albatrosses are not around their neck. And, you know, unfortunately, they are around Joe Biden's neck. There was one other fascinating uh, finding in this poll. So an unnamed Democratic candidate beats Trump 46 to 40. What about an unnamed Republican candidate, somebody other than Trump running against Biden? The finding was the Republican candidate would beat Biden 48 to 37. So an unnamed Democrat easily beats Trump. An unnamed Republican easily beats Biden. What do you make of that? Well, what I make of that is that uh, most Americans uh, clearly have not warmed to a choice between just comes down to Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, they see both as flawed. I mean, I think a lot of the reasoning behind thinking Joe Biden is flawed uh, is itself flawed, but there it is. And it's a reality, I think, that Democrats have to grapple with. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that things would be easy uh, on a road to nominating someone other than Joe Biden. I am saying that if Biden comes to, to the Democratic convention next summer with the polling still looking like this, that is going to be one glum looking convention. Now, Democrats have tried to explain why we shouldn't worry about these poll results too much. They say polls a year out, aren't really that reliable. A lot is going to happen in the next year. That's certainly true. They say once Biden starts to campaign, he'll do better in the polls. They, they, he'll focus on his achievements. And they say once people see Trump in action in the campaign, they will be repulsed by him and, and reject him. What do you think of those arguments? Well, I think some of them are good, particularly, you know, seeing more of Trump. Uh, will only help Biden or any Democrat uh, run, running for office. 
but you have to put Biden's polling in, in a broader context of the public's uh, sentiment about how the country is doing, about the economy, uh, and uh, and so on. Uh, this, this is a uh, rather depressed public uh, that is looking for some kind of change. Biden uh, can be many things that are positive, but he's not exactly the best candidate to uh, personify change. Uh, you know, and, and that's why I think the Democrats would do well uh, to go elsewhere, and, and in particular outside of Washington, you know, to governor or someone like that. There is one Democrat who agrees with you on this and who is challenging Joe Biden in the New Hampshire primary. His name is Dean Phillips. He's a congressman from suburban Minneapolis. He has said his goal is he doesn't think he's going to be president of the United States since nobody's ever heard of him except in YZ and St. Louis Park. But he does hope that people who don't want Biden to be president anymore will vote for him in the Democratic primary. And he recalls that in 1968, a little known Democratic senator from Minnesota, Eugene McCarthy, ran against LBJ on an anti-war platform in New Hampshire, got almost 50%, and two weeks later, LBJ announced he was withdrawing from his own re-election campaign to focus on bringing peace to Vietnam. Uh, I believe you know something about the Gene McCarthy parallel. I do. That was my uh, first uh, campaign involvement. I was you were about five years old at the time. Yes, I was 18. Uh, uh, I had uh, LA high schools had mid-year graduation. So I had, I had the whole first half of 1968 uh, free. And I spent it as uh, someone working on Gene McCarthy's campaign. Now, at that point, this was an issue of policy. This was the Vietnam War had uh, rent the Democratic Party uh, and much of the country as well. Right now, although there is a potential that uh, Israel-Palestine could be uh, a real rift in the Democratic Party, it is, but I think it's obviously less intense than a war that America is directly involved in. The anxieties about Biden aren't really so much on policy, possible exception of the Middle East, as they are on his chances of defeating Donald Trump. And it, you know, it is frankly much more important for the future of the country to defeat Donald Trump than it was in 1968 to defeat even a scoundrel like Richard Nixon, who for whatever his flaws was in terms of policy, uh, a largely mainstream Republican, uh, somewhat in the Eisenhower mode, and wasn't really going to an authoritarian rule. Well, let's suppose that Dean Phillips succeeds, that he comes close, he gets a lot of votes in New Hampshire, and this persuades Biden to step aside. Let's just imagine that. What happens then? This is in February. Well, uh, first of all, you know, Biden isn't on the New Hampshire ballot because uh, it, the, uh, it didn't get the permission from the uh, Democratic National Committee. So Biden's vote has to be a write-in vote. So that that's that's a complication in and of itself. But certainly there are people who have been uh, raising their hands just in case he uh, uh, decided not to run. Uh, obviously, the vice president would, uh, Kamala Harris, would uh, uh, clearly, I think, at that juncture enter uh, the race. So would Gavin Newsom, who has been uh, very prominent in saying, uh, not I'm running this year, but I'm next. Uh, and hopefully some gov other folks who I think are more electable than Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris, like Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Well, let us suppose, just pursuing this hypothetical for a little, for another minute, Gavin Newsom defeats Kamala Harris in the remaining uh, primaries. Let's recall Kamala Harris did run in the 2020 election and did so poorly uh, that she withdrew before the Iowa caucuses. So she got zero votes the last time she ran for right. president. So let's assume she doesn't do very well this time and is defeated by Gavin Newsom or some other uh, white person. Isn't this going to hurt votes among the base voters who are black? It may. It may. On the other hand, 
I think Gavin Newsom would be particularly weak in winning working class votes. He's been able to do a lot in California, and California has been able to move to, certainly on social issues and some economic issues, a progressive uh, agenda, but in part because California has uh, the smallest share of white working class residents of any state except Hawaii, which has never had a white majority. And I think Gavin Newsom's affect, for lack of a better term, does not play well really uh, would not play well with working class voters of, of any race. I, I think he exudes a kind of uh, nouveau elite uh, in his identity and in his many of his achievements that not necessarily uh, going to, you know, uh, make him that strong a candidate, which is why, uh, you know, I think a, a ticket of uh, like say, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and uh, Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock uh, who is African American would would be uh, about as strong as the Democrats could could come on in 2024. Gretchen Whitmer and Raphael Warnock in 2024. Harold Meyerson, he's editor at large of the American Prospect. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about an immigrant sweatshop worker who became one of the most charismatic radical leaders of the early 20th century. She's been forgotten, but now a new book tells her story. The book is Rebel Cinderella, and the author is Adam Hochschild. Adam is a best-selling author of 10 books. My favorites are To End All Wars. It's about the anti-war movement of World War I. And Bury the Chains. It's about the beginnings of the abolition of slavery. Adam has won many awards. He's a co-founder of Mother Jones Magazine. His articles have appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, The Atlantic, and The Nation. Last time we talked here was a couple of months ago on the 100th anniversary of the Palmer Raids, the deportations of immigrant radicals, which somehow seems relevant in our own time. Adam, welcome back. Thank you, John. It's always good to talk with you. Well, I'm a historian of the American left, but I must confess I never heard of Rose Pastor Stokes until your book came along, but apparently I'm not the only one. That's for sure. She's really a, a largely unknown figure today. The surprising thing to me as I delved into her life story was that at the time that uh, she was alive and politically active, she was extraordinarily well known. Uh, in fact, the proprietor of a newspaper clipping service in 1921 and the newspaper clipping service was the nearest thing to a database at that time, did a count and found that she was the woman whose name was most often mentioned in American newspapers. There were five men, you know, people like Woodrow Wilson and Henry Ford, whose names were mentioned more often, but no woman was mentioned more often in the press. And if you use a database of old newspapers today, like the wonderful one that the Library of Congress has that's online and free for anybody to use, you'll see thousands of articles about her. Well, you open your book, Rebel Cinderella, with a fabulous scene, Rose Pastor Stokes at Carnegie Hall in 1916, but she's not playing the violin. Right. She is addressing a rally promoting birth control. And to speak publicly about things and to distribute medical information about birth control was illegal under the Comstock Act at that time. And she announced on the stage of Carnegie Hall, I'm going to break the law right now. And she began passing out birth control leaflets. You write about her first job in a sweatshop making cigars. How did a cigar maker get a full-time job at a newspaper. You know, a lot of young people today would like to get a job like working at a newspaper right now. That's for sure. There were more newspapers back then. 
Well, here in brief is her story. She came to the U.S. She, uh, as an immigrant. She was born in Tsarist Russia, fled from there with her mother at the age of three, lived in England for uh, seven or eight years, came to the U.S. in 1890 at the age of 11, and had to immediately go to work as a factory worker uh, in a series of factories that made cigars. By the end of a dozen years, she was the sole support of herself, her mother, and six younger siblings who'd been abandoned by a ne'er-do-well stepfather. But starting around 1900, she began sending anecdotes, letters, articles, sentimental poetry to a Yiddish-language newspaper in New York, the Yiddish's Tageblatt, or Jewish Daily News. Happily for me, because I don't know Yiddish, she wrote for the paper's one English-language page. <laughs> and in early 1903, the newspaper invited her to come to New York. She had been uh, living and working in Cleveland, Ohio, with her family. Come to New York and become a reporter for the newspaper. And that she did. Now, the interesting thing to me at this point was that she was not submitting radical, revolutionary, pro-labor articles. That's not what got her the job. What was she writing when she first started? She was writing uh, humorous anecdotes, sentimental poetry, and an advice column for women called Just Between Ourselves, Girls. And what kind of advice did she offer? Very conventional advice. No sex before marriage, hold out for the right man, worship at the synagogue uh, on Saturdays, but sit in the balcony, which is in Orthodox synagogues is often where women were, were segregated and made to sit. Very conventional stuff. Didn't seem to have thought much about politics. But after she moved to New York and got married, uh, she got very deeply into the radical movement of that time. And then she got married. The, the man in your story, James Graham Phelps Stokes, I was familiar with his name for one reason. The Phelps Dodge Strike of 1917. It was at a gigantic copper mine in Bisbee, Arizona. It's an incredible story, and it tells a lot about the family that he came from. It does indeed. This was the strike where the company, the mining company, mobilized a posse of several thousand people and rounded up some 1,200 workers and took them out of, out of town across the state line to New Mexico to get them out of town. Very brutal crackdown. This was one source of the family's uh, fortune. Another source was New York real estate, especially luxury apartment buildings on the Upper East Side. They also owned a cluster of gold and silver mines in Nevada and a railroad that led to them. And James Graham Phelps Stokes, or Graham as he was known to his friends, was a son of this family, but he'd taken a somewhat different route in life. He went to medical school, got very horrified by encountering extreme poverty in New York City. He was in medical school at Columbia while he was working as a medical student on a horse-drawn ambulance serving the city's slums. He was shocked by what he saw, and he became part of the settlement house movement and went to live in a settlement house, as many volunteers did at that time, settlement house on the Lower East Side. And one day, Rose Pastor, as she then was, was sent to interview him. That's how they met, and they fell in love. So poor left-wing girl marries rich guy from an incredibly wealthy family. How did this marriage work? Well, it was an extraordinary match, not just because it was someone extremely poor marrying someone extremely rich, but because it was a marriage of Jew and Gentile, which was very, very unusual at that time. And the unusualness of it made it literally front-page news uh, across the country. It was, it was reported in Europe and Australia and other places as well. Front page of the New York Times, lead story in the New York Evening World, this extraordinary match. 
And the public followed them with great fascination. They lived in a blaze of publicity for the next 20 years because this seemed to be the Cinderella story. Prince Charming from his castle uh, marries poor, virtuous Cinderella, whisks her off to the castle from her humble hearth, and so on. Except their lives didn't follow the Cinderella script. Bram Stokes, to some degree, had left the castle, Rose had no desire to live in one. They often stayed with his parents, who had uh, extraordinarily fancy homes, but it always made her uncomfortable. And they married in 1905. In 1906, they both joined the Socialist Party, and for the next dozen years or so, they were friends with all the most interesting people in American life at that time. Emma Goldman, Lincoln Steffens, John Reed, Margaret Sanger, Big Bill Haywood, Eugene Debs, uh, all these folks were in and out of their homes, and some of, some of them left us their recollections of Rose and Graham. So, Graham Stokes became a socialist. How closely did he follow her politics? She was always in the lead, and he was always one step behind? Not exactly. He was, in a way, in the lead at the beginning because theirs started off as a fairly traditional marriage. Graham was seven years older than Rose. They married on her 26th birthday. She looked up to him, was enormously impressed that here was this guy who knew a lot of the leading writers of the day, had multiple graduate degrees, seemed to know all kinds of things that uh, she didn't know and hadn't experienced in, in life. And I think it took her a decade or so to realize that she was smarter than he was. There soon began to be an imbalance that appeared because she was a tremendously popular public speaker. Uh, one of my few regrets in, in researching the book was that it was just a decade or two too early for audio or video, so I couldn't actually hear the sound of her voice, but there are countless people writing to her saying, this is the best speech I ever heard, it moved me to tears, newspaper reporters saying, you know, the audience was so riveted that they wouldn't leave the hall even when they turned the lights off, things like that. And there are signs that Graham was not happy that his wife began receiving more attention than, than he did. And then came World War I. Right. And this was the cause of really the first breach between them. Rose ended up feeling uh, that it was a terrible mistake for the United States to enter the war. And she went on the road saying this publicly giving speeches in different parts of the country. Graham Stokes was so enthusiastic for the war that he enlisted, went into uniform, was too old to be sent overseas, although he tried very hard to make that happen. But he served in uniform in the New York National Guard for several years, never got closer to combat than marching down Fifth Avenue in a parade. And then they were further divided by the Russian Revolution, which happened, you know, the, the second phase of the Revolu Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik seizure of power, which happened in the fall of 1917. Rose was all for it. Graham was against it. So this deepened the rift between them. Now, you say Rose campaigned against America's entry into World War I. A lot of their friends in the Socialist Party who did this ended up deported or in jail. For example, Eugene Debs went to prison and Emma Goldman was deported. What happened to Rose? She was arrested, sentenced to 10 years in prison under the Espionage Act uh, for speaking out against American participation in the war. Graham Stokes put up bail money. They appealed the case. And eventually, some three years later, it was overturned on appeal, so she didn't have to go to jail. Eugene Debs, however, was so moved by her being sentenced and being willing to go to prison for her beliefs that he began speaking out against the war much more energetically than he had done before. And actually, in the speech for which he was arrested, he said, if Rose Pastor Stokes is guilty, then so am I. And he was sent to prison for several years, and he was still in prison in November of 1920 when he received nearly a million votes for president on the socialist ticket. Well, all this happened 100 years ago. Do you see any parallels to today? 
Well, I think a lot of the issues that angered Rosengren that made them go into the socialist movement are very much still with us. Look at inequality in this country. Today, the top 1% of the population has a greater share of the income and a greater share of the wealth than was the case in 1905 when Rose and Graham got married. You know, we still have extreme poverty in parts of this country. Uh, every time I drive onto the freeway in Berkeley, I see an encampment of homeless people with their tents under the freeway underpass. So a lot of these problems are still with us. You say she was prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Whatever happened to the Espionage Act? An amended version of it is still with us. And uh, security agency whistleblower Edward Snowden and uh, a number of other whistleblowers have been prosecuted under it. The amazing story of Rose Pastor Stokes. Adam Hochschild tells it in his irresistible new book, Rebel Cinderella. Adam, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. We spoke with Adam Hochschild about Rebel Cinderella in March 2020. The book is out now in paperback. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. 